and my husband had been fascinated by Scottish Highlanders. And we would drive by this place and you'd have to stop, get out of the car and like look through the woods to see them. And I was like, they're just big, shaggy, horned beasts. I don't know about horns. And he's like, oh my gosh. They wanted to sell the herd. They were getting older, had all health problems. They wanted it to go someone local, a young family. I'm like, well, we're young, we're a family. <laughs> you know, maybe we could buy some calves. I didn't want anything to do with moms. Oh, buy some calves. So I come home and made the mistake of telling my husband. And he's like, let's buy the whole herd. Welcome to Choosing to Farm, a podcast for first and returning generation livestock farmers and ranchers to share their stories, find connection, and provide insight into the life of farmers who didn't take the traditional path. I'm your host, Jen Colby. folks, this is Jen. Thanks for joining us today. Register now for the Gathering of Good Grazers coming to Western Massachusetts in January the 25th through the 27th. This event is a partnership between the Northeast Grazing and Livestock Conference and the Northeast Pasture Consortium Annual Meeting. We'll have some of the latest research to share. We'll have farmer panels, practical presentations, lots of discussion, and plenty of time to connect with friends from around the region. If it sounds like I'm part of the hosting, I am, and I'm very excited about this. So sign up for updates from the Northeast Pasture Consortium, and you'll get more information delivered right in your inbox, including the registration and scholarship information that's also in the show notes. So thanks, and we hope to see you there. Come join us. On today's episode, uh, Trisha Park and her family farm in central New York at Creekside Meadows Farm, where they bring together a host of different livestock types, vegetable and forestry enterprises, and they sell nearly all of their products directly from the farm. Here's Trisha to tell us more. I'm Trisha Park, and I'm on Creekside Meadows Farm in central New York. Awesome. What do you guys do there? So we raise 100% grass-fed and finished beef, pasture-raised and woodland-raised pork. We kind of mix it up a little bit. We also do vegetables for our farm stand, maple syrup. I do soaps and skin salves. We have a sawmill, so we do a lot of lumber and stuff also on the side. Oh, that's awesome. So how does the diversity of the things that you do, because you do a lot of different things, how does that how does that work for your year round and your cash flow and stuff like that? Well, it used to be even more diversified. <clears throat> it was pretty crazy. We were also doing pasture-raised chicken and turkey. And we stopped doing that about four years ago yeah. um, for a multitude of reasons. We were making money at it. Um, so it wasn't that. It was more of physically we were doing all the butchering and then just trying to schedule it with our marketing and because I was at a farmer's market at the time. So we ended up <clears throat> cutting them. We, we slowly cut them back. And then we just said, okay, that's enough. But as far as like the cash flow for the, the beef, 
in the pork. It used to be pretty much we sold beef and pork year round and we sold yeah. it to local farmers market. Um, when COVID hit, um, I was actually managing the market at the time. So the market had to close for a while and oh. customers were calling and wanting to know what do you got in freezers? So we had, you know, it's March. We had pork coming back from the butcher that we'd raised through the winter. And then we had beef still in the freezer from fall. We had, we had what we usually had stockpiled was to carry us through to like July. Yeah. As selling at the farmer's market. I sold it all in two weeks. Oh. <clears throat> I had to go through seven chest freezers and did a complete inventory, weighed everything out and tagged it all, which I only usually do when we're selling it. You know, I would pull stuff out of the and tag it all up and take it to the market. So I had to do all of that. So that was a weekend of headaches and then did an online store and then just sent out an email to customers saying, hey, everything's on the online store. You go on, you pick what you want, and you're going to be given a time slot of like 30 minutes on a Saturday morning. Hmm. And you need to be there within that 30 minutes, or you need to call me because I'm laying, I'm putting out freezers or freezers, coolers. I put out coolers in the driveway by the farm stand and have people's name on it and their order would be in it. You got 30 minutes to pick that up or I'm pulling your order, putting back in the freezer. <clears throat> and serious. You were serious. Whoa. We were I pickup started at nine and it went till noon and I had I think six or seven coolers that would be lined up every half hour with orders in it wow. and it and just and big orders not just a couple things it was like they would jam-pack this cooler and we sold everything that way and then people were like well when are you gonna have more because they know that we have butcher dates throughout the year and we at the time we were raising pigs we would raise pigs and have a group ready to be slaughtered every three four months and I already had all of my butcher dates because I'm quite a bit of a planner I had all my butcher dates for the, the whole year for beef and pork and I said oh you know we're gonna have beef ready in July and da 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 da, da. and they're like I want to put a deposit down I'm like oh yeah deposits that would be smart <clears throat> so then I figured out, you know, what we're going to have and what our prices are going to be, because I used to sell it, you know, as retail cuts. So then we sold very little as like halves and holes and quarters, huh. mostly pork. We would do that way. Not that much beef. So I had to go through all my prices again and go, okay, what can I price it as for that? Be it profitable, but I don't have to, go, maybe I don't have to go to the farmer's market this year. How great would that be? That was like my dream. All these years, I, I, we sold at the farmer's market. I didn't want to be there. Right, right. <laughs> I want to be home. Well, I got that. <laughs> you know, and it was much as it's fun at the farmer's market and you get to see your customers face to face. It's exhausting. And so I was taking deposits and I did it all online. And friends of ours had a greenhouse nearby and they're really desperate for help. So I'm, I'm working at their greenhouse from nine in the morning till noon at night. And I'm getting all these dings on my phone when an order comes in. And they're like, what is that? And I said, oh, sold half a pig. Oh, sold a quart of beef. Oh, so sold a 25 pound package, all this different stuff. You know, and this is, this is now in April. I mean, by the end of April, I had sold all of our beef and pork for the year. I had orders on everything and deposits. Wow. So money in the bank for operating expenses for the whole year. And I didn't have to leave the farm on Saturdays to go to the market. I didn't have to prep for it on Fridays. And I was like, this is awesome. 
you know, um, I stopped managing the farmer's market and I handed it off to someone else who was going to be there because I didn't have to be there. And it happened again the next year. And so now it's the third year yeah. of, I just sent out emails in the February, March to previous customers. They figure out what they want, what dates they want it from my schedule and pay the deposit. And then whatever I don't sell that way, I just keep emailing and posting on social media and the website, take orders. And there it goes. So, um, you know, the beef is all sold for the whole year and we don't harvest until September, October, in October. Wow. In November. And then all the pork is sold except for two pigs that go in, in in December. So the September and October dates are full. And I just got two pigs left to sell in December for the December date. So that's been great for that kind of calf. That's well. fantastic. So it sounds like so it sounds like your sales have stayed high. Yes. That's amazing. I'm so glad to hear that because I've I've talked to a number of folks who were who were like, you know, the first two, you know, 20 and 21 was great. And then 22 has been like tailing off. So I know nope. good good job. Glad that you got connected and to people and they this, love you. This was just like this was years of me studying marketing. Yeah. listening to you know, there's not a lot on there's some stuff on like farm marketing but it varies so much between vegetables and products and where you are and and all of that and so I was just trying to fine-tune it and the big thing was you really got to connect with customers so when I was at the farmer's market I was really connecting with them because I like to gab and tell people stuff about the farm and they like to hear it yeah good and bad yeah, yeah. Answer it a little bit, you know, but you, pretty much they want to hear it. And so you tell them all that and really make a connection and get them on the email list. So you own that email list. And, um, you know, if they're on social media, they're watching Facebook or Instagram. And then we've got a farm stand that's seasonal, June to like October. So we catch people that way and just stay in contact and keep that momentum going and it it really worked it was years of hard work but it's really nice to see it 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 really paid off and go yep I was right this does work and I tell other people you know if you do this this and this it might work they're like oh it doesn't work I'm like eh, it can it can I'm not the <laughs> only one that's doing it. so and then like the other stuff like the vegetables is seasonal I don't do anything in the winter. I don't have a high tunnel or anything. Yeah. Maybe one of these days I probably should try and get one to do a little more extension, but you know, season extension, grow some more in the winter kind of things. But and then the maple syrup is pretty much in March, sometimes a little in February. It's pretty quiet here. It's muddy, the weather's up and down. And so it fits in really well with our schedule. Yeah. Do you guys do a lot of your logging? Or, or woodwork then, in the winter or in the summer? Yeah, quite a bit. Why is my phone making dings? <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, oh, yeah, you we just sold a half a pig. Wait a minute. <laughs> I don't think that was it. I have it on silence and it's still making noises. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, the logging we do mostly in the wintertime if the ground's frozen and the snow doesn't get too deep and it's, that, it's kind of tough sometimes because get these thaws and then it's muddy or the snow gets too deep out there but we're usually out there doing stuff because we do our own wood chips for the cows uh winter bedding yeah and so we're dropping trees for that and then we chip the tops and then 
have the logs. And um, we started doing firewood last year. When we bought the place, about half of it was wooded. And there's 150 acres. So 70, 80 acres was woods. And it had been logged like 20 years before, but it was heavily damaged. The loggers were pretty unscrupulous. And we had been slowly taking out all that timber and using it for firewood. And then we had bought a small sawmill and then we upgraded to a bigger one. And what really wasn't sellable timber for lumber, we could cut it on the sawmill and make enough lumber mm-hmm. to build a shop, build a, the sugar shack, build the farm stand, build two barns in the past couple awesome. of years. <laughs> and then, you know, we're getting all that done. And my son is 26 now and he's just like, we ought to start selling some firewood. There's enough out here that it's just going to rot. Um, so he started doing firewood and um, had no idea what we were in for. And we ran out of logs and I think we sold 150 base cords or something. And mm-hmm. we're like, oh, well, that's not too bad for a startup. Of- first year. Yeah. The pilot. <laughs> no, we were thinking 50 face cords would be a way to get our feet wet. And it- totally. So that, that was, that was good. And then every once in a while, we'll do some custom milling on the logs. So, so who do you have like on the farm? So you said your son, um, like who's all part of the farm and what are they, what are they in charge of? So um, me, um, my husband, Matt, and we've been married and be going on 30 years. And so he is a mobile equipment mechanic. Um, he's lost his job as a skid steer mechanic a couple years ago. And um, our son and I convinced him to go on his own. He's mobile, so he has truck and trailer and he can go on site and fix lawnmowers, tractors, skid steers, pretty much anything with an engine, sometimes without an engine. Amazing. Plus he's a welder. He was a welder for years before. So he does that. And our son, Cameron, who's 26, Originally, it was Cameron and I running the farm. Um, Matt was always off farm working 40 hours a week and then driving back and forth. And um, Cameron was homeschooled from after third grade and was really into the farming. And so that all got integrated into his education. Usually whatever mom broke, Cameron could fix. So <laughs> when dad wasn't around kind of a thing. Yeah. <laughs> about that. But now Cameron he started his own mobile mechanic business. Oh gosh, like five, six years ago, just a way to make money because the farm really doesn't make enough to pay him full time. Mm-hmm. And he's really good at fixing things. And then he got his welding skills really up there too. So he does a lot of, a lot of welding. And then most of his stuff that he fixes is tractors, farm tractors. He does a lot of farm work for people. Yeah that kind of thing. So he's here and there. He's actually out tedding hay right now. That's more of his thing. He likes to cut the hay, tet the hay, bale the hay, cultivate the sweet corn, plant the sweet corn kind of thing. But yeah. some of the other stuff, he used to do all of the chores with me and he's kind of too busy. Yeah. And now that Matt is here more, Matt's doing a lot more of the livestock than I, I can do more vegetables and, and stuff now. So it's, just us three. It's always been us three. Yeah. And then our roles just kind of keep changing. Does adding in the wood um, enterprise 
is that going to cash flow things additionally, you know, better or additionally so that Cameron could be just doing wood or just on the farm if he wanted to, or is, or is he, he just enjoy like, doing the mobile mechanic? That's also, a well, you know totally what, get that. He's, yeah. he's an excellent mechanic and, you know, he almost was born with a wrench in his hand. <laughs> he, he really likes doing welding and timber. Yeah. cutting lumber um, cutting the lumber and then doing firewood so he's kind of taken that over he's got a couple of friends nearby that have woods that had been logged but there's still a lot left tops and stuff that he's going in and pulling out for firewood yeah he built his own logging trailer so if you think of it it's just a trailer with these big oh how do i say it like has sides that come up and it holds logs. So you would uh -huh. see them hooked to tractor trailers driving down the road. This yeah. is a smaller off-road version. Ooh. So it's got some big turf tires. This is entirely built from scrap. Ah. This is completely engineered by him. It has oh. a big arm grapple that comes over and it picks up the log and puts it on the trailer. He does stuff like that. If you need something fabricated, he can picture it in his mind and he's, a, he's original you know it's it's a genetic thing in my family and his father's family of dumpster diving kind of thing and you see something you just don't get rid of it because you might be able to use it or you have this picture in your mind of what they're going to build and and it blows my mind but you put my husband and son together and they're they're stuff comes out like that so he really likes welding he gets to a point where he doesn't like to deal with people and customers that much or yeah. ordering parts parts has been a lot of problem getting parts and stuff oh for repairs so the, the cash flow is we could find that balance between the farm wood that's being sold and then the wood that he brings in and so it's always something to try to juggle that make sure it's all fair it's like you guys are are just offering such a great example of the many different skill sets that we need in the course of a day to do yeah. what we are doing. Yeah. <laughs> like, and how do you find that skill set? Like, I fully admit I'm not a mechanical person. I mean, I have general logic, but I don't usually have the tools. I don't actually. I've never operated with a tractor, so like, how far will they go? <laughs> Like, what's their radius? Oh, yeah. Will they go to Vermont? Right. I'm well, just, just working out my list of who I could well, call when things break. Well, my son will be in New Hampshire in a couple weeks. <laughs> so he'll go right through Vermont. My husband keeps saying, oh, we need to go. We need to go up Mount Washington again. So we'll be going through Vermont. <laughs> Maybe oh my gosh, off. you could pay for a Mount Washington trip by just scheduling <laughs> some maintenance across. No, no, that yeah. doesn't sound much like a vacation. <laughs> no, no. A great vacation for me, but not for him. Right for them. <laughs> <laughs> so how'd you guys get started? When did you get started and how long have you been doing this and what did it look like? Oh my gosh. So it was a long time ago. <laughs> I had been in the Air Force as mechanic. And when I got out, I couldn't get a job as a mechanic. No one will hire women 30 years ago. They don't even hire them much now. And I had experience working on all sorts of equipment, gas and diesel engines and 
it was pretty comprehensive. And so I had been an EMT and volunteer firefighter in high school. And so I, when I got home, I was like, you know, I had my EMT certificate. Uh, maybe I'll take some classes at the community college. Maybe I'll get a nursing degree. And then started training to become a paramedic. I was going to be just volunteer and was working at a grocery store. And then a friend of mine said, oh, there's this great guy in the next town over. And um, she was one of my mentors in the paramedic training. And I had known her forever. My mom had been a medic and um, too. So I was pretty well known around there. And we're on a mock rescue, practice rescue and introduced us. And so we're on this muddy hillside and he's like running the ropes to haul the people up out of this gorge. And it was all practice. And yeah. She's like, you just, just hang out with them, hang out with them. You can hold the flashlight. I, I don't know anything about tying ropes or anything. I'm a EMT, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so then th that's how the whole thing started in the oh mud outside in the dark. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and so he had 26 acres and an old barn just down the road from his parents. And it was an old barn built in like the 1850s or 18, no, 1870s. And we ended up getting, we met in August, got engaged Christmas Eve, and we're mm -hmm. going to get married the following August. Aww. And he was just like, you know, we'll just live with my parents while we build a house or something. And I was like, absolutely not. I have been around the world. I've lived on my own. I, I am not living with your parents. We're not living with my parents. We'll have to figure something out. And I think it was my mom said, why don't you just build an apartment in the barn? And we're like, oh, Yeah. He's handy. Right. He was a steel worker at the time and he knew carpentry and stuff. So we got his dad co-signed a ten thousand dollar loan for us to buy some stuff to start. And so this is a hundred by thirty-three foot timber frame barn in pretty rough shape. And got enough lumber and stuff to build a 30 by 30 apartment in it, one bedroom apartment. And started that way. And you know, as we would get money, we would put in kitchen cabinets and all this sort of stuff mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and had 26 acres and one year he was like you know we should get some cows they could just graze the grass down instead of mowing it with his dad's old farm all super a tractor and I, I didn't know anything about it I I grew up with a couple acres and a bunch of apple trees surrounded by dairy farms I knew nothing about any of this and so we take our tax refund and our son is two at the time, take our tax refund and we go down the road, this guy's race, raises Hartford's and we bought George and Betsy. They were yearlings. And I was like, what are we going to feed them? We have no money. When we were dirt poor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm working odd jobs here and there to make extra money. He's working as a steel worker. And then he had actually got him a job as working as a skid steer mechanic instead of driving all over climbing up iron beams and so we're getting a little bit of money and took the tax refund and got them but it was like you know you gotta have fence and this used to be a dairy farm but the, it was all old stuff and rotted down and so he went up to his dad's his dad had 30 acres most of it was wooded and he cut down some ironwood trees that rot off after three years but yep. it was cheap and it would get us started yep Yep. You know, in three years, we'll have some more money and buy better fences. 
yeah, that was the idea. So we put up this fence post and strung up one strand of wire and George and Betsy could graze around. And then we put up hay, built this little teeny, you know, odd shaped barn thing and put up the hay for him. And the next year he put George in the freezer and he tasted different. And then I had to do a lot of research. So this is pre-internet. Right, right. I'm going to the library and getting out all these magazines and books and stuff, trying to figure out why the meat tastes different and found out about grass fed. So we never fed grain at all ever to cows simply because we were poor and couldn't Mm -hmm. afford to buy grain, Mm -hmm. but had grandpa's tractor and could do the hay and stuff. And so we started doing that. And then Matt's like, oh, we should get some chickens for eggs. So we get a dozen chickens and I had to get books on on that to figure out how to raise them. And next thing you know, the raise, they're, you know, getting a dozen eggs a day. There's three of us. One's a toddler. So I put out a sign. I'd sell eggs for 25 cents a dozen. Yeah. And, you know, every year we'd add on a little more, add on a little more. And then, so we're down to just Betsy, the cow. And then my husband wanted a, a donkey, Huckleberry, to keep her company. And then we got her to cross the road over to the dairy. There was a dairy farm that had a field next door. And he would put his young heifers in there with a bull. So we got Betsy to cross the road and got her bred by an Ayrshire bull. And the guy was like, well, yeah, whatever, but good luck getting her back out of there, which was another thing of trying to get her back out of there. Right. She <laughs> She's like, but I like it over here with the other yeah. cows. Yeah. <laughs> a rope hooked to the truck, trying to get her to cross the road. Oh my God, totally, <laughs> totally. It was pretty funny. You know, and she had BJ, big and juicy. Yeah. So I, I learned quickly not to name them too many cute names totally get that so bj and you know put him in the freezer and yeah the meat was really good and we had we're selling more eggs we started i learned about meat chickens raising meat chickens so we started doing that and it was basically it was all for us and you know the meat the beef tasted really good the chicken tastes really good oh let's get a couple pigs so oh, let's go up to the other farm right up the road because there was a lot of small farms around and we got a couple of pigs. So we raised a couple of pigs, Porky and Petunia, I think it was. And <laughs> back to the cute names. It should have been pork chop and bacon, but yeah. You know, and we raised them up and like, wow, we really improved the pork chop kind of thing. And then around that time, I dislocated my knee and was at physical therapy in town and met this woman. She's also getting physical therapy. And they owned a herd of Scottish Highlander beef cattle on the hillside across the valley from us. And my husband had been fascinated by Scottish Highlanders. And we would drive by this place and you'd have to stop, get out of the car and like look through the woods to see them. And I was like, they're just big shaggy horned beasts. I I don't know about horns. And he's like, oh my gosh. They wanted to sell the herd. They were getting older, had all health problems. They wanted it to go someone local, a young family. I'm like, well, we're young, we're a family. (laughs) <laughs> you know maybe we could buy some calves I didn't have, want anything to do with moms oh we'll buy some calves so I come home and made the mistake of telling my husband and he's like let's buy the whole herd and we had a little bit of money put away and you know you get that tax return because you got a kid and stuff we're like okay so I made him an offer so he bought five mom cows a bull and five calves wow it was a whole other ordeal getting them wrangled to bring them home. When we unloaded them and I said, this is not a hobby. They're going to pay for themselves. We're not just sinking money into this place. They're right. going to make money. And so we would raise them up and they're just grazing around on all the brush and weeds and pasture and stuff. And we would sell some of them. 
and um, people really liked it, the idea that it was um, the heirloom or the older breed and stuff. And then we yeah. some some chicken. And it really was like the egg customers would get sold things, the beef, the chicken, the pork. And we just slowly would add on every year and buy more freezers. And we never did farmer's markets. We did a couple little specialty markets, like one day at like Syracuse University had a one day thing. Um, then, you know, in, in our little town, we might do something. And by then we could get a website and had flyers around and just were selling everything right from the basement of the barn, right out of the freezers. Yeah. And it was just kind of growing that way and getting a little out of hand. And we were running out of land. We were on a creek that flooded a lot. So we're right in the floodplain and you get a hurricane that comes up through and your best fields go underwater. And it was getting kind of frustrating. The, the, business is growing we're not making much money mind you right even though i said the beef was going to make money um we, there would never seem to be that much left at the end you know at the end of the year um but we had more customers than we could produce for and now i now with some more training i can balance that out a little bit better but when you have more customers than you have product and you're not much making much money it's time to raise your prices yes <laughs> get out that calculator and fix your finances because you're not charging enough money so and you know and in, in the middle of all of that we're trying to use land around us it was all small farms around us and then the big CAFO dairy farms we're going from 500 cows to a thousand cows to 1500 cows and they're gobbling up any bit of open land around and it's the the kitchen table deals that we're never in on. Totally. And they're like they're never even listed, more, right? Yeah, they're never you even listed. That they're turning over. Yeah. Yeah. And they would start off with really good lease prices. And then, you know, in a few years, they're just buying it out. And we could never compete. And no one would even give us the time of day. And here it is. Some of these dairy farmers, like our, our next door, the one that was right next door to us, when he retired, I mean, he started literally with two cows yeah, and got someone that would, you know, let him use some land. And he built his whole business from that. And he's like, you'll never make it. I'm like, well, you made it. It was, it was really frustrating. And I kept on saying, you know, at the time, the real estate market was really high. The economy was good. Let's just sell it. This is unique. We're seeing all sorts of stuff that was selling. And this is like the mid 2000s. And I'm like, let's, let's sell let's sell. And my husband doesn't like change. Um, never wanted to leave the valley where he grew up. You know, his parents were half mile up the road. His one sister's up the road. His brother's right there. His cousin's here and there. And I'm like, no, I think, you know, we could sell this. And we had, I think maybe $10,000 debt. And, and part of that was like a truck loan. So there was very, you know, we didn't even have a mortgage and we're like, sell this we're gonna have cash in hand we could buy 100 acres 60 acres whatever yeah yeah and and pay cash for it yeah and he was like no 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 and in the middle of all of that the original grass extravaganza conference happened and i was on the planning committee and 2008 something like that yeah okay yes i think that's the first one i went to 
And a friend of mine said, oh, why don't you be on the planning committee for this? I, I didn't know anything about this stuff. So I started going to the planning committees and stuff. Next thing you know, I get talked into being a presenter twice. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd only done like little things here and there. Yeah. So presenting and stuff and, and met some really great people there that I still know that really made an influence on us. And one of them was Phil Metzger. And he worked out of Norwich, Shenango County here in, in, in New York. And later on, he had told me about this training coming up with holistic management and originally wanted me to go through training, become an instructor. And I said, I just, there's no way I can get that much time off the farm to do this. We're way too busy, plus homeschooling and stuff. And um, then later on, he'd send me another email and he's like, oh, now it's a training class. It's going to be for beginning women farmers. And it's going to be throughout the Northeast. And you would be perfect for this. And I read up on it and went, wow, this might be different than all the other trainings that we've been offered before because it was real comprehensive and mm. a lot of financial management and decision-making processes and stuff. I said, I, I got a good feeling about this and I don't have good feelings about some of these training classes because I don't like to sit through a class and be talked at. And, and this was really different. So I signed up for it and it was like eight months worth of training. And I can remember coming home from the first class and we drove like three hours to get to class. A group of us would drive together and I came home and I'm like, this is it. This is, this is going to make it this. Huh. I, I like this stuff. The message really spoke to me because it was like, it's about making decisions based on your goals. It's not telling you how to farm. And it just made sense to me. And I was like, I can do this. And so every class I was just like, okay, I, I can do this. I still had trouble writing my holistic goal. It took me a long time to really get it narrowed down, but it was just like, I can do this. And then we went through the financial ma management part of it and doing enterprise analysis where you're breaking down all your enterprises and looking at all your numbers. And I would give them my numbers for like my meat chickens and stuff, and rip it all apart and go, you're not charging enough. This is what your time and da 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 da. And it's like, oh man, I gotta raise my prices. Oh, customers aren't gonna like that, you know. And I think sometimes we need somebody else to tell us that because we kind of yeah. know, but we don't want to admit it. Because we, you know, I think <laughs> of it as I'm a consumer. I don't want to see my prices when I go, to the store go up. Right. So then now it's like, no, I'm a business owner I'm not a consumer of my products you know I am a consumer of my products but I'm not paying for it and it's not my job to be there my customers income it's not my job to to just feed them and and do it at a certain price point it's this is what it takes for me to do this and pay myself a living wage and cover my bills da 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 da, da. and I had I still after all these years still have trouble with it, which is probably good. And um, a friend of mine who's out um, east of here a couple hours, she went through the training later on. We've become friends and we're almost always texting each other multiple times a week, if not daily, about pricing and customers and, you know, standing firm, you got to raise your price. You know, yeah. feed just went up 20%. Are your prices going up 20%? You know, stuff like that. And I really loved that training and I loved it enough that 
I stayed with it and mentored for a few years after it. And I started the training, become an educator. And then I just got overwhelmed with it all. But we, with that class, I really broke down all of our enterprises and figured Mm -hmm. out what was losing money, what we could turn around and what we really should just say goodbye to. I wanted to take a quick break to thank our underwriter for this episode, the Northeast Pasture Consortium. The Northeast Pasture Consortium is an alliance of farmers, researchers, service providers, and policymakers across the 12 Northeast states focused on issues of importance to pasture-based livestock farms. The consortium connects folks from Maine to West Virginia around grazing topics and helps set USDA and university research priorities across the region. Visit grazingguide.net to learn more about our work and join the mailing list to hear about upcoming events and farmer scholarships. And so here we are, Matt decided, okay, we can sell, but the the place is a mess. I mean, it's an old barn with the original siding from 1874. Oh my goodness. So he, you know, we took some money and um, years before he had bought all this rough cut siding, got it all sided, got it all painted, redid all the other buildings, made it all pristine and stuff, put it up for sale and the economy had crashed. And the you know, real estate market had tanked and it was hard to get loans. So, and we were trying to sell it ourselves, which was completely stupid and had it overpriced. And so it didn't sell. And it was like the next year, really, we hired a friend of ours to, who was a real estate agent and his son and my son are, are friends. They're still friends after, since kindergarten. And he's like, you know, you, this is a more reasonable price. And so we put it that price and it was still, gosh, almost a year. I think it's before it sold. It was really tough. It was like 2010 it sold. I think it was. And it was really tough. The wackos came out of the woodwork. The people who had no money, but thought that we would hold the mortgage for them. I'm like, no, I need that money. I need that money to buy another farm. And we had tried. So we had all... I had gotten all the finances in order and had gotten everything. So it, we were profitable, got rid of like the laying hens. We stopped selling eggs because we weren't making any money and raised our prices on things. It had a really good business plan that I written with holistic management and da, 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 da. And the bank just said, basically you have no equity. So we own 26 acres with this barn house on it. But the barn house wasn't completed because we only lived in like half of it. And it's still Um, like a barn. And we were assessed at like $50,000. And we're trying to sell it for $250,000. And the bank is like, no, we're not going to give you a loan. When you sell it for that, we'll talk. (laughs) A. So it went up and down, up and down. And we finally sell it. And now we've got six figures in the bank and the bank is like, okay, we'll now talk. We can talk. Now we can talk. Yeah. But then we're homeless because we had to close on it. And we're like, what are we going to do? We don't have any money till we have the closing to buy anything. They won't even, even though we had a contract on it, we couldn't even get approved for a mortgage, even though we had a contract for that much money. Oh, I understand um, that. Wow. It, it was really a tough time that with the economy and stuff and buying 
because it's a farm loan. It's more of a commercial loan than it is a house loan. Totally. And we have been looking at different properties and we couldn't even get contracts on them. It, it went back and forth. It was really, it was crazy. I never want to go through it again, ever, ever, ever. Yeah. And um, we um, finally get it and the sale is going to go through. So we bought a used camper trailer. And um, I had met a woman before that had lived in this camper trailer through a summer as they built their house on their farm. So we're like, we're just going to park the camper trailer up the road behind my in-laws on their 30 acres. And we'll have money in the bank. It'll be easy to buy a farm. Yeah. Next July, we closed. Oh, seriously. Oh. It was insane. It took us from November until May to get a contract. And then they dragged their feet and we didn't close until July. Wow. And trying to find, we wanted to stay in the area because my husband had his off the farm job. We're trying to stay in the area. We're trying to find like 60 to 80 acres. And it was not easy to find, especially mm -hmm. with the dairy farmers were getting larger. They're gobbling up land. Yes. Or it's being subdivided into 10, three to 10 acre parcels for houses. And it was, it was crazy. And we ended up getting 150 acres. You know, we put two thirds down for a down payment and then still have a mortgage, but we ended up going a little bit larger that I, you know, I really wanted to pay cash for a place and be, we had the solid numbers from all my holistic management training of what we could do. And then when I'm at class, you know, they want examples and I'm like, well, here, I need to know how I'm going to ramp this up to pay for this. Totally. So we would use that in class and stuff. And so we moved 20 minutes away from our old place. Oh, 12 minutes kind of away amazing. from where I grew up. And yeah, more or less in the neighborhood with family. That's huge. That's huge. And lost customers, believe it or not. Because they yeah. wouldn't go to the new location? Some of them said they didn't want to drive, you know, an extra 15, 20 minutes. It's out in the country. So it's not like it's you're on the highway or something. I didn't think it was a big deal. And then some didn't like it because we looked like we had too much money. We weren't yeah. poor anymore. Right, right. We weren't living in this rundown barn and we weren't their, their welfare case kind of a thing, which was interesting hearing it from some of them. They had so much pity for us that they would buy from us. And I was like, oh, okay. So that's a wake up call. That's yeah. interesting. What did you come out of that saying we're going to do differently when you heard that? We were... So when we moved, we're trying to ramp up production. So you know, we've been selling from the farm before. I had these set customers and then some of them, you know, they're dropping away. And we're like, what the heck? So then we had to start looking at well, where are we going to sell? We were thinking about doing a farm store on the farm, but it's like, well, they're not even coming to the farm now anyways. Right. That's, we actually ran it through the testing process with holistic management, did a whole case study for it. And, mm -hmm. um, ended up going to the local farmer's market and figured, well, we'll just find new customers right in this new community, in this new town, 20 minutes away from the old one. Right, right. <laughs> just over the county line, you, you know. Say there's different people over there in that other county. <laughs> and um, we're just gonna have to find new customers. And so that's what we did. We went, started going to the local farmer's market huh. and and met um, our neighbors, so to speak. And mm -hmm. um, some of them were really close by. And, you know, it's 10 minutes drive into the village. 
of Casanova where we were at the farmer's market and then just decided, well, you know, and some of those customers did come back amazingly. I don't know if they didn't find another welfare farm kind of thing or they missed it. They would show up. Oh, hi, long time no see. And I was like, <laughs> okay, whatever. We're still here. Thank yeah. you. They're like, yeah. oh, your prices have gone up. You got to pay for a mortgage now. And I was like, no, I got to run a business. You right. know, I'd like to make some money for the first time doing this. You know, I think I'm good. <laughs> it's always been that struggle with, you know, as you know, farmers need to make money and. And we feel yeah. bad sometimes about asking for it or, or charging more for it. I'm curious. I talked to different people about this. And do you think there's sort of a self-esteem side of that with farmers not wanting to charge more money? Like we're not worth it. Like our stuff isn't worth it. We're not worth it. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. yeah. You know, I used to, for a while I had house cleaning business and I clean house for one of the dairy farmers down the road. Mm-hmm. And we have a, this some dairy farmers if they're listening I apologize it's probably not you but we have this saying in the house of that's a dairy farmer mentality of they just take the price that's given to them and they just keep on even though they're not making money and they're losing money or barely making any money because that's all they're worth and they don't set the price and um farms like ours we have to set the price and um I know when we first started at the old place the farmers were always saying you're never going to make it um why should I pay more for what you have like for eggs why should I pay five dollars a dozen for eggs which is what we were at back all those years ago um when we quit we were at five dollars a dozen and why should I pay five dollars a dozen when I can go to the store and get it for two and this is from a farmer and his wife. And I was like, because uh, it costs more and it's better. And uh, we were bombarded with that. And it gets to the point where I know I'm very stubborn. It's taken me a long time to figure that out. But it was just <laughs> like, we're going to make it. <laughs> right, right. And um, we're just going to do it. But it, it, there is some where we know it's better than what people can get elsewhere. Yeah. Um, often and we need to demand it um and i'll still i'm really good at demanding it and then sometimes i just have the i back you know i backtrack a little bit i go oh yeah but then i'm like no no i'm i'm worth it it's worth it and when you're out there struggling and getting all bloody and sweaty and crappy and the cows crapping on you and literally crapping on you and there's blood yes. and just like it's got to be worth it it's not just you know all that rosy thing it makes you feel good it's there's got to be some compensation there because we shouldn't be the welfare case we should be able to pay the bills pay ourselves a living wage and have really good food and it's an uphill struggle and there's too many generations before that have just been caught into that dairy farmer or crop farmer mentality of well this is the price that the market's given us we'll have to make do yeah and some of us come along and we're like nope we're gonna be in charge of our price 
Yeah. And it's not my problem if you can't pay for it because you can go elsewhere. But if you want really, really good stuff and our values align, then yeah. I'm the person that's going to grow it for you. Yeah. I've been talking to a number of first generation folks, as you know, podcast. And it seems really interesting to me and not surprising to me at all that a lot of the first gen folks are coming in their foodies first. Yeah. And they're like I want to be able to grow and raise and eat good food for my family and, and myself. And that is really interesting because I remember working in the nineties with the first like big flush of organic dairy farmers in Vermont and a little bit New Hampshire, a little bit Massachusetts, but mostly Vermont was having this big upswell. And, and there would be, you know, some of them came in as foodies and like they drank their raw milk, they knew what they were producing. Mm -hmm. And then there would be these other dairy folks who um, they'd certify, but they would never buy organic food. They, they, they would do what they would do, but they weren't doing it for the food. They were doing it for the farm. They were doing it for their family. They were doing it, you know, they were doing it for the price that they got, yeah. but they, they weren't coming at it from a, from the perspective of doing it for the quality of the food for themselves. And I, I don't know culturally what that does. Like, are people more committed? Are they differently committed? If, if they're like, no, no, I want, I'm in it for the food. Like i I'm just tremendously curious about that. Like, does that add to longevity? Does it not? How's it changed the culture when we're in it for the food first and how we get to the food? How do we get to the carbon? How do we get to the biodiversity? Yeah. Yeah. It's, mm. yeah. I'm just, I've, yeah. I've seen this theorizing seen the same thing. Yeah. But then, you know, we had our own milk cow for 13, 15 something years. And I was surprised the dairy farmers rarely ever drank the milk out of their own tank. Right. And I'm like, why? You know, and I had my own milk cow. I knew how to milk. You know, theirs was a lot more, but I was just like, why wouldn't you? You know, you're used to it. And it was, they were still buying milk at the grocery store. And I was like, it, it always kind of, it, still baffles me like you're producing this great product but you won't drink it <laughs> right I've never quite understood that either yeah I haven't because I was like well if it's that good oh I guess it's not that good <laughs> I guess maybe not that good and there's a lot of other things that go into it but still it was just like geez you know and I've met people that you know they raise the meat animals but they're I've met them and they were in training and they were vegetarians right and right. they're going to raise pigs, right? Or they're going to raise beef. And I'm like, why? You is this? But you're a vegetarian, and not. It was personal choice, mental right. choice for them to become a vegetarian. I'm like, but then you're going to raise animals for meat, and you're raising them on grass. So they're vegetarian. I never got past that. I know there's there's some people that do it for health reasons and stuff but then there's some that I'm just like but it's so good <laughs> you sell us to someone like we don't do sheep and goat because we don't even care for goat and right. we've had lamb here and there but we don't care for it so we don't raise it they're cute they're adorable they're great grazers we're just like we've tried them a few times we're just like I can't sell people lamb because I don't eat it 
same thing would go with. I was face to face with them at the farmer's market and I would tell them how to cook something. If I told totally. them how to cook something, I cooked it. It was like that honesty thing for me. And, yeah. um, and then I would send them down the road to whoever had lamb, like go down there. They're really good at it. I, me and lamb, we look great in pictures. Any other time they, they jump fences, they like to die. I just, we don't understand each other. <laughs> but, I think, but I think that referral piece of, of like saying that's not something that we raise, but go, you know, go visit those other folks. I, I feel like that builds a credibility. Like you're not trying to do a false, you know, we don't, we don't eat that, but here's this lamb. You should buy it from us. Like that's, that, that's almost, um, well, it feels really inconsistent or maybe a little hypocritical to be like, well, we don't eat it, but you should eat it. And yeah, at the same yeah, time, absolutely. you're building credibility when you're when you're helping them, even though it isn't putting it in your pocket. And it seemed like, yeah, the credibility is really the, yeah, that and hypocritical, but we try to have the credibility of this is what we do and this is what we eat. Yes. And it's yeah. really good. And this is why we do it this way. And we really yeah. believe in that. And so you can trust us. And yeah. And then if I didn't like some of the farmer's market, no, I wouldn't send anybody down to them. But then there was right. other people. You kind of got to know some people and go, yeah, you know, they're really good at land. That's what they raise hundreds of. Yeah. Um, and I've tasted it. And yeah, I'm just not a land person. Yeah. Just not. I, you know, just like we don't do much fish either because they didn't graze here on the pastures. <laughs> that's always my fallback but i totally get that (laughs) so much fun in a landlocked place absolutely so much seafood here yeah no i totally get that looking back i mean you've been doing this 24 years ish yeah looking back like what would you recommend to somebody else to get started or something that they might need to know it's expensive Mm. i just buy land anywhere right now yeah there's a parcel near us that's ten thousand dollars an acre Mm -hmm. it's a cornfield i don't know how to even do what we do and pay that um Mm -hmm. their prices are gonna have to be a lot higher or they're gonna have to figure out something really different um my age-old one that i've always said was how we started we started just raising food for ourselves and figuring it all out on a small scale. Yeah. Then you always have the fallback, you know, when the raccoon comes in and kills all your chickens. Yes. You could probably go to another farmer. You can go to the store and get chicken. But once you've got orders for chicken that people want from you and you're so new at it that you didn't know about electric fence and the raccoon gets in and kills all your chickens, then you're in a world of hurt business-wise. So you know, learn how to do it yourself. I've seen a lot of people that have gotten into doing vegetables and they just jump right in, never grown anything before. And they start a vegetable farm with a CSA and fall flat on their face. Oof, they've yeah. never grown anything before. I grow vegetables now and I sell them still on a very small scale, but I learned everything before growing it for us. Learned all the pitfalls, found out about all the bugs and the diseases and the nuances and what the soil is like, and then slowly just started ramping it up. Starting off, if someone wants to start off with a 150 acre farm, you've got to have some experience, however you can get it. 
or you got to have a lot of money. And then there's actually a place literally two miles from us where the people, they stopped here and said, we're going to start a regenerative farm. Okay. And we're going to be your competition. And it was like, huh? <laughs> and they're our age in the 50s and no experience. They started raising some chickens in their lawn and they hired our son to do some work for him. And he's like, you got to look at this place. And it's like, it's a mansion with a yeah. five car garage yeah, with some Jill Salatin pens in the yard. And he starts when he's standing here after he said he's, I think he was joking. He's going to be our competition, but he's just like, well, we started with 200 chickens and the dog ate 50 and something else ate 50. And then oh, these other ones are dying and we're just doing it to have fun, but we've got to make this. And you know, we bought this land near us and it's got to be profitable. So yeah, it's got to be profitable. So they're just brush hogging it and they're sinking. They bought the place. I think it was $8,000 an acre. Wow. And they're just brush hogging it. And then he wants to put some grain on it. And I'm like, well, why are you putting grain on it? Well, cause it's going to fixate nitrogen. And I'm like, but then what are you going to do with it? Right. And he was going to plant buckwheat. And I'm like, buckwheat isn't going to do that for the soil. Right. <laughs> well, we got to make some money. And I'm like, uh, buckwheat's not that profitable. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, you know, what are you trying to do? Well, we're probably going to get beef eventually. And I was like, oh, okay. They've got a professionals coming in and redoing their barn. They've got all this buying or renting new equipment, hiring someone to do this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, are you, what are you going to do eventually? And they're like, oh, we're going to do beef cattle. Oh, okay. Okay. You know what you're doing? Well, we're going to have someone put in fence and we're going to buy this herd. And I'm going, okay. So they're like <laughs> thinking money away to do this. And right, right. But I was like, I don't think right. it's the best thing to come into someone who's doing what we do, a regenerative farm who's been doing it for 20 years ago. We're going to be your competition. <laughs> That's not the best thing to do. But then there's another one in another direction who stopped and introduced himself quite a few years ago and was just asking less questions, came here for a farm tour. Yeah. Super great guy. They've been starting it off small and working yeah. their way through it. Kept his off farm job. Yeah. I think his wife has an off the farm job too. It's like what, you know, I was listening to Troy's conversation that you had then, you know, don't quit your day job, <laughs> sink your money away. Right. And as you can get some experience, experience. it's, it's not easy at all. Yeah. Um, it's going to make you question everything. And there were some times this spring where I was like, uh, okay, I'm done. I'm just done. This is ridiculous. I have never seen this in a cow before. I never want to see it again. And I'm done. Oh, man. <laughs> it was just like 24 years and we've never had this happen before. This is too much. But yeah, it's hard. And you just got to try and get experience when you can. And there's no, there's no set recipe. Yeah at all because it really depends on the person and what you can pick up and who you can get experience from and like we don't train people anymore we've done some classes and stuff but we don't have apprentices and all of that on the farm we just can't handle it we're not that tight yeah so it's gonna be really tough and I don't see that many 
people getting into it now. I just don't, and I don't blame them. There seems to be no control over the real estate prices. That's a barrier, yeah. It's a massive barrier. I, at the prices of what stuff is selling for around us, I don't know how we could afford to buy 150 acres like we did. Yeah. Um, I try to do the math and it, it boggles my mind because we're using almost every square inch of the place. And we'd have to really look at enterprises really differently to to do it. And I just, it, it makes my brain hurt. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, wait a minute, I don't have to do this exercise. I don't have to think that way. No, it's true. We don't have to start again. We don't have to start again, but um. No, but I think it's good for us to, to to just maybe not like dwell, but but to think about what it would what it would take to to start again. I and then I start to sound yeah. I'll I'll start to sound like those dairy farmers around our old place and go, you can't make it. <laughs> right, it, right. Not like that. You can make it. You're just gonna have to. There's so much information out there that we never had just great business plans out there and spreadsheets and numbers for this, that, and the other thing and do-it-yourself videos. There's so much information out there. They're just going to have to do the legwork and, and make it work for them and don't base it on anybody else's model. Just because what we're doing on this farm right now is working for us does not mean it's going to work for anybody else at all. You know, and we we still get the people that are like, they're big Joel Salatin followers, which he's a great guy. We own all of his books he really helped us change some of our grazing and stuff, but what works for him is not going to work for someone up here in New York or in the Northeast. And just even looking at like labor wise or land wise and, and yeah. that amount of chickens and stuff, but you've got to, and be prepared for change. So, you know, our business plan has changed so much and if they don't have analytic management training, they should get some and learn how to do the financial management, but enterprise analysis. Yeah. I've done those for so long to just really rip apart one of the enterprises and figure out one, do we like doing this? Because if you totally hate something, like in the end, when we got rid of chickens and turkeys, we hated them. Yeah. Did them. Yeah. They taste delicious. I hate the smell. I hate butchering them. If we had had a legal butcher near us, we might have stayed doing them for longer. But still, when we just raised 45 chickens for ourselves this year and going out to the pasture, moving their houses, I was just like, I can't even stand the smell anymore. I don't want to look at them. I just... We have a few laying hens that we enjoy, but the meat chickens were just like over with. It's so funny when you said that, when you were like, I can't stand the smell of them instantly. I don't do chickens anymore either. I haven't since we moved to the new farm. Oof. And I was just like, oh yeah, that's uh -huh. this is like a specific smell for meat chickens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. It, it, that was like the one thing my husband, my son was just like, I hate them. When you hate doing something, you're not going to do a good job. Exactly. It's going to be the last thing and on then, the list, and right? Then, and then you're giving your customers a crappy product. Right. And I don't want to do that. And so, you know, some of that went into that, but, and then really just look at it. If there are, there are 
farms that they really believe that they have to offer this certain product. I'll use eggs, for example. Yeah. They really think that they have to have eggs for sale because eggs bring in people and then that's how they sell their other products. I used to think that way. The egg laying project, it didn't change our sales of other products. Yeah. It, yeah. it, it, it didn't. It made our lives so much easier, so much nicer. And sometimes the quality of life, I mean, uh, quality of life needs to matter more. And I do know farms that have made their business decisions based on their quality of life and their family yeah. life. Yeah. So their business model is really different. And I'm like, how are you even making it? They're like, we're happy. We make it work. If we need to make some extra money, we pick up some extra jobs and make it work. We just make it work. Their quality of life was more important. Something that we dropped quite often early was we dropped a lot of, you know, our quality of life was not good. And we were really, really stressed. When we went on vacation, we got sick because oh, yeah. we decompressed and got sick kind of thing. It's the only time you're allowed to get sick. But really look at your enterprises when you are doing it. You know, even if you're farming now, really look at your enterprises every single year. Because you need to know, are they making you money? And are you happy with it? Not ecstatic, not in love with it, but are you happy with it? Yeah. Um, and then make changes and changes happen and farms change. And I had conversations over the winter with a couple other farmers that they're like, oh, we can't change. We can't change. I'm like, yes, you can. Well, our customers are going to lose them. I'm like, find other customers. It's for you. You and your family and your marriage matter the most. The rest of it, you know, it, it, it needs to change. And when we've made changes, I struggle in everything with it. And then when it's done, we're just like, oh, wow, it's great. <laughs> this is wonderful. <laughs> Why were we so stupid? We didn't do this before. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, my God. Wonderful. Like I, I've even done it, like growing certain vegetables. So I have a small vegetable operation. There are some vegetables that, I just, I will not grow anymore. I will not grow spinach anymore. I will not grow arugula anymore. It doesn't like to grow here. It's a constant battle. Flea beetles adore it. It's like a trap crop for things. And I'm like, I'm not going to grow it anymore. Period. Yeah, no, yeah. done. I'm sorry. You'll have to go somewhere else. People are like, well, you can make so much money. I'm like, yeah, I made a lot of money growing arugula. It killed me. Yeah, not worth <laughs> so, it. Not yeah. Worth it. And I'm, I'm like, this year I'm trying to grow broccoli again. I suck at growing broccoli. I know I can be better at it, but I'm just not, now I'm like, you know, this is the last year I'm growing broccoli. I'm done. You're, you're done. Yeah. It's too much struggle with, there's, oh I, I, I can so grow lots of I still get that. I feel like I'm doing that a lot this year myself. Just like, nope, that thing. I don't want to do that thing anymore. Weird. Like I'm allowing myself to not do things. Yeah, and it doesn't Great. even, you know, if you've invested, we had the point where we were like, we've got so much invested in it. And I'm like, cut your losses. Just stop the loss. Stop the money going out the window. Because yes. you can keep throwing those five and 10 and $20 bills out the window. They're not going to come back. They just don't. They fly yeah. away. Yeah. Just just cut it off. Just let it go. And, yeah. and that's what they do in the real business world. And this Some of us in the farming world. forget yeah. that we're in the real business world. We are, and it's uh, even more real, real business world. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we're and, on the front line of it every day. So many of us, we, you know, we don't treat it that way. No, 
And I started listening to like podcasts that are done by people in the, the big business yeah. of, of just understanding like how they get investors and how they run this part of their business and that part of the business. And like, oh, now I know why they went to business school because they learned all of that stuff. Well, now they can talk about it and we can figure it out <laughs> and how it applies to here. And then I'll get to the point where I'm like, okay, I, I have no plans to be that big. We're just fine the way we are. Yeah. But the principles still apply no, ma no matter yeah. the size. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for, for this conversation today. This is awesome. And I'm so glad to have gotten to know you better. I hope you have an awesome afternoon. Thank you so much. Thanks. You too. I am so glad I had the opportunity to spend time talking with Trisha. We've exchanged emails over the years and I bought popcorn for, from her once and we had it shipped to our grazing conference. And we've known each other through social media, but have never actually sat down and just had a one-on-one -on -one talk. She's just delightful and so, so thoughtful. Um, I have been kicking around the idea of doing a few panel format podcasts around particular topics, and I think that she'd be a perfect panel member. So if you have any questions for Tricia, let me know. Maybe I'll make the panel idea something that we explore in 2024, depending upon whether you all think that that's a good idea to listen to a few different voices around one central topic at a time. So some topics that, that were raised today that I just, I wanted to highlight, um, sort of the broader concept of creativity in farming and ranching. And, you know, I mean, Trisha talked about during COVID, like how they made such a big you know, kind of a 180 degree turn from going out to farmer's market to then hosting people back at the farm, how they managed the systems of people picking up. Like, so what that brings up for me is how are we building in the ability to be flexible in our systems if things suddenly change? Um, Ranching for Profit has uh, like a they kind of call it the the four D's uh, planned, you know, drought, uh, divorce, um, despair or depression. And um, and and that is and holistic management has planning as well. And Tricia, you know, um, referred to that. And so in all of these different planning cases, it's not prescriptive that you have to do certain things, but using the concept of planning as an opportunity to think through and talk through different options, bring the creativity out, really try to get creative. And, and that this is coming from a place of this recognition that things do change. And sometimes they change really quickly. And sometimes we can pivot really quickly in the moment, which clearly these guys did well. But Sometimes things change and we're not really, you know, we're not prepared and we're not feeling creative and then we want to shut down and then we don't make sales. So how are we building in this ability to be flexible in our systems? What are some things that we can think about now that might help us in the future? And the other side of creativity that prompted me to think about too was this creating things that we need <laughs> from scratch. Like this is an important piece of successful farming. And I don't always mean that we all have to know how to weld <laughs> or, or be contract, you know, carpenters and contractors, um, although those are great skills, but just having a willingness to imagine and create and then follow through to create this new thing, whether that's a, a re-envisioning a system or figuring out um, a tool that is a better fit 
we're always adapting and that is just a key skill for a successful farmer or rancher, I think. Um, so she also touched base on a couple of different times on the struggles of buying a new farm and um, getting onto land in general. And we know real estate prices are rising. Um, you know, we bought our play, our first house we bought in the nineties. Um, and that was a, a real estate rising time as well. Um, not like now, but at the time it felt pretty significant. Um, so just some things to think about, like think about building equity, think about, um, work on a business plan around the things that you're good at and you love to do, build up as many things in your favor as possible. It's not easy to buy a farm. And I really agree with Trisha that starting a farm by coming in and spending lots of money before understanding how to farm really doesn't set some up someone up well for success. So that said, if you're getting started at any age, whether it's a second career, you're in your fifties, like there are, or you're younger, there are ways to get your practice and your, and your build skills and get your 10,000 hours. Malcolm Gladwell talks about this as 10,000 hours of experience to get really good at something. So it's okay <laughs> if building skills and setting yourself up to buy are separate things. It's okay if these are separate things, but they're, but they're also very important and e equally important things. So when we bought our original house and land, it was really rough. I mean, it was all we could afford. And after 16 years, uh, we had built enough equity in that. And I had practiced different farming methods enough that we were in a better position to buy this new farm that we're on now. And it was still a big lift. It was a really big lift. I'd definitely do some things differently if I could go back. I would work a little bit more harder on building that equity. I think that would have made our process a whole lot smoother. But I think that the truth is, it's likely gonna be hard and it's gonna take a good amount of planning and just give yourself a little grace on that and, and start now, start someplace, um, but start now. And then the last thing, um, Trisha talked about um, uh, enterprise analysis and the importance of reviewing individual enterprises regularly. And as you all, as you all know, if you are a regular listener, I'm I'm a big fan of um, ranching for profit and and the school and the follow up program. And what we do in that system is to continually be looking at how each enterprise contributes to the whole business, um, economically and, and speaking of that, so, and reevaluating continually, is that an enterprise that I should continue to do? Should I stop doing it? Should I expand it? Should I change it? Um, and that's really important. It's one of the reasons that I am not doing pigs any longer. Um, so if that's something that you've been meaning to learn more about doing, um, there's going to be an upcoming session on that at the gathering of good grazers in January. So bring in that full circle again. Um, I'll drop the registration link to the gathering in the show notes so you can check it out, see if the agenda lines up with what you want to do. What parts of this conversation resonated with you? So reach out with your comments or your questions at choosingtofarm.com. You can check the show notes for links to Trisha's contact information, as well as a link to some of the topics we talked about. Um, 
including a link to the Savory Global Initiative, which is where you can check out some online courses in holistic management, if that resonated up with you as a thing you'd like to learn more about. Um, as always, if you'd like to support the show, please share it with a friend, consider supporting our Patreon, or leave a public review. They really, really help, and they are free, and I am grateful for them when folks leave a public review. So, as I mentioned at the top of the show, and multiple times since, the Gathering of Good Grazers is coming to Western Massachusetts in January. Check out the registration and the info links in the show notes. You can also join the mailing list of the Northeast Pasture Consortium to get notified with various updates related to that. There are a range of scholarship options for farmers, for service providers, and for students to attend. And it's a hybrid conference, so you can attend in person or online, whether you're within driving distance or you can't get away from where you are, um, there's options. So we're very excited and we hope you'll join us in January. It is such an honor to be able to share your stories out into the world. Farmer to Farmer is how we learn and how we build a community, and that's what I hope that we're doing together, one episode at a time. Thanks, everybody. I'll see you next time. Here's my husband, Chris Sargent, to play us out. Have a great day.